0: Welcome back to the Forster More Than Law podcast. I'm Mary Stickland, knowledge development lawyer with the commercial Real Estate team, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Georgia Elliott Smith. Georgia's the managing director of sustainability consultancy Element 4, and she's worked with a variety of clients, including the Bank of England, Landsec, MACE, and DEFRA, on delivering more sustainable projects and business practices. And alongside Georgia is podcast returnee partner Vicky Towers, who heads up the client-facing sustainability initiatives within our commercial real estate group. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi, Mary. Nice to see you today. So today we're going to discuss why you should consider the advantages of strategically planning your sustainability strategy. But first, I wanted to open up by asking you, Georgia, if you could just give us an explanation about net zero as a concept?
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me to talk to you. Um, Yeah, I spend a lot of my day talking about this. (laughs) It's um, (laughs) the net zero concept. So, I mean, this is just a huge bandwagon at the moment. Everybody's jumping on this net zero um, concept. The idea of net zero is um, ultimately that we're aiming to balance the emissions that we are creating with the amount of CO2 that is then drawn out of the atmosphere. That's ultimately what it's about, so that our net carbon dioxide emissions are zero. However, it's not quite as simple as that because a lot of people claim to be net zero carbon or carbon neutral simply by purchasing carbon offsets this has been a real problem over the years and particularly high emitters will then invest you know high emitters like fossil fuel companies for example will then invest in things like tree planting schemes with arbitrary calculations about how much co2 uh, a tree draws from the atmosphere during its life and it's all very theoretical and the concept fundamentally has not been applied across the board in a very responsible way so over the last few years the um, definition of net zero has been refined and we now particularly in the construction in the building real estate sector we now have a more refined definition of net zero which is that we must initially reduce our overall carbon footprint by around 75 percent before then reaching for offsetting tools and techniques so the focus is very much on achieving a low carbon operation in the first instance and that was something that was previously missing when people were claiming net zero so now if you are going to make a credible net zero claim you need to take that first step of assessing what your carbon emissions are and doing what you can to achieve a deep decarbonisation in the first instance before offsetting everything that cannot be effectively reduced.
2: And Georgia does that apply retrospectively as we sit here today in terms of where net zero has been achieved by buildings looking back?
1: yeah. Um, how How does that work? So the way it works is at the moment there's a a lot of different claims you you set your own boundary on your net zero claim is essentially where we are at the moment definitions are being refined and the uk gbc for example the uk green building council just in line with COP26 um, announced their net zero carbon pathway, which is a, I recommend everybody takes a look at that if you're involved in the real estate sector. The requirement there is that you assess your baseline energy emissions compared to industry benchmarks that exist. You then reduce your emissions um, by 75% based on industry benchmarks and then offset the remainder. But you have to do it based on the building's whole life carbon. So that's embodied carbon of the building itself, of the works that you're doing, the materials you're bringing in, and the life cycle carbon emissions um, operationally. So it depends what it is that you are claiming or or driving to net zero for. If it's for a building, then we're looking at the 60 year um, emissions of the building. You do have to be careful when you're interrogating net zero claims to ask what are the boundaries here? So it's not just saying, uh, oh, this is net zero. You've got to say, right, the construction is net zero or the, the whole life operation of the building is net zero? What is it? Is it the company's um, scope one and two emissions that are net zero, or is it their scope three emissions as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of understanding that it's that operational and... Uh, embodied carbon as you say in those scopes and how they apply and I suppose thinking about it if people were sort of wanting to make that claim and and tick that box is one or the other the sort of what's the the option you find clients of yours going down the road of if you see to I mean whether it's the operational yeah. or the embodied
1: well I mean first of all in terms of net zero everybody comes to us saying that they want to be net zero by You know, and they'll come to us and say, Oh, we want to be net zero by 2030. And immediately the question of that is why, like, where is this coming from? Because very often, you know, in order to achieve net zero, you've got to spend a huge amount of money on carbon offsets. Because the reality of our industry is that low carbon construction and operation of the buildings is really really hard you're going to have a significant chunk of emissions that you can't offset so first of all you know you're going to be spending millions potentially of pounds on purchasing carbon offsets and that mm-hmm. is problematic and controversial in itself so the first step for me always is right deep decarbonization that's it that's what we've really got to focus our efforts on so actually what we're looking at is low carbon design not net zero in the first instance so embodied carbon and operational carbon those two are very interesting because I think we'd always assumed that operational carbon was the biggest issue in our industry so you build your building and then the fact that you've got to run it for 60 years it seems you know it seems obvious that that's going to be the larger part of your carbon emissions However, when we look at normal commercial buildings, you're on a regular refit cycle on a refurbishment and fit out cycle, which means actually quite often the cat a stuff is stripped out by the incoming first tenant. So mm-hmm. immediately, even with your first tenancy, your embodied carbon emissions can be enormous. Um, with that that first fit out and then going on from there you know every five to ten years you could be um, refurbishing or you know getting new tenants tenants, yeah exactly so actually once we start looking at the numbers over that refit cycle you can see embodied carbon becomes massive and can be about 45% in a lot of models I've seen of the overall whole life carbon of a building and that I think is something that is really surprising I think even to a lot of you know interior designers um, and tenants that their impact of their fit out is so huge within the life of a building.
0: So, with that all in mind, whether you're a developer, an investor, an occupier, or somebody who's, you know, a specialist advisor to to those sort of players within the real estate industry, it's really important that you set your strategy out early on in the process. For example, you know, when when a building's being developed and, and pre let,
1: mm-hmm. absolutely. So what we do, and actually this we're seeing this come through now in the London plan, is a requirement for a circular economy statement and also a requirement for a whole life carbon assessment. These in the London plan really only... Um, refer to the the biggest projects in London that get referred through to the mayor but actually that principle is now starting to be adopted by a lot of responsible developers and design teams um, and tenants so what we do is create a whole life carbon assessment at the beginning so that can be um, a little bit of a back of the fag packet initially just to work out In a scheme like this, where are most of our carbon emissions going to come from? And we just sort of map that out fairly sketchily at the beginning. We look at benchmarks. So there are some amazing guidance documents out there now, you know, building professionals have been doing a huge amount of work, lots of committees and and steering groups on developing really great benchmarks. So um, organisations like LETI, for example, the London Energy Transformation Initiative, which we're part of, um, organisations like RICS and REBA have been doing lots of work on trying to get reliable carbon benchmarks in place. So we then work with the design team, taking that... Bit sketchy, fairly approximate initial assessment, looking at where the highest impact is and then starting to refine the design uh, in order to reduce carbon. And that might be things like reusing the structure, you know, really, really straightforward, fundamental decisions about does this building need to be demolished? Or are there elements of it that we can keep and reuse? And can we reuse in situ? Can elements be reused? Because it's much, much better to reuse than it is to recycle, um, let alone then incinerate or dispose of completely. Um, and just trying to drive those really early decisions about the way the building is put together and the components and um, the form of the building. You know, Are we going to use modern methods of construction? Are we gonna use a tr- more of a traditional frame solution? And then work through through the process with the design team holding their hand and helping them to assess the importance of different decisions at different stages.
2: And do you find, Georgia, that there's a sector specific, is there a driver amongst any particular sector, or is it across yeah. the piece?
1: Well, you know, I mean, commercial landlords, particularly multi-tenant buildings, you know, those though that sector it's such a competitive market at the moment. You know, those developers are really looking for ways in which they can tell a different story about their building and have mm. this really deeply embedded carbon story about um, how the building performs. And actually that's that's for helping tenants to achieve their own low carbon ambitions. But actually there are new rules that have just come out um, TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And what really savvy developers are realising is that investors are now having to report on the climate impacts of their investments. And that is filtering down now to developers. So investors are starting to ask for really good data on how different um, landlords are performing and developers are performing on carbon. So it's no longer it's no longer enough just to say that you've got an environmental policy and that you care about these issues. You actually have to provide really hard data on whether or not your building is aligned with the Paris Agreement. You know whether or not you are aligned with industry benchmarks to address carbon emissions. Um, and we're seeing that now filter through. Um, asset managers developers design teams you know even down through into furniture and fm which is great, great. And, i love that and, and just
2: drilling down then on from the commercial side i mean presumably the predominant demand's coming from office space is it as opposed to say industrial
1: so we've had we've had a few conversations with clients in the industrial sector and i think that is a sector that's really ripe for change in a number of ways i think there's a lot that could be done in the industrial sector on health and well-being of the workforce who are working under uniquely difficult circumstances so i think there's a lot that we could do with our built environment in that space but also um you know essentially these industrial units just big tin sheds you know and they they have a lot of opportunity to save on energy and absolutely to, to good things
2: and so, and if you think about so if you think about yeah. the the space that they take up and the roof space whether it's for so you know you can the solar paneling you can put on there all these sorts of measures yeah. that you can take to um address that and as you say in terms of the environment that these people are working in it, it is um intense isn't it in terms of physically and mentally and lots of tenants are very savvy at making sure they want to attract um, the best employees. Um, You'll find that the competition in the locality, there'll be other um, large sheds. um, And so it's about that competition and attracting the best, isn't it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think developing a strategy across a portfolio or across an estate is really Mm. important. So again, what we've tended to see historically with clients is they'll come to us on a building by building basis but what we try to urge is not a building by building approach but more of a portfolio strategy like a whole organizational strategy because some buildings you'll be able to do a bit with. Some you'll be able to do a lot with. And if, but if you've got a really great strategic approach to a minimum performance across all of your buildings, and then taking key opportunities to advance your understanding and advance your specification on on key um, strategic properties, you can then roll that out across the rest of your portfolio. But not just doing it on a piecemeal um, in a piecemeal way. The best way to invest in sustainability because this is only going in one direction you know it's only going to become stricter and stricter so the best way to spend your money on sustainability is to approach it in a strategic way Mm -hmm. and to start thinking about what are our key impacts across our portfolio and what are our key opportunities and how are we going to over a timeline a set timeline how are we going to learn those lessons, how are we going to roll it out and how are we going to get from where we are now to where we need to be in five years time? You know, when all of these standards are really going to be biting that are coming through now as a result of all the climate um, net zero government targets and so on.
0: Talking of being strategic, um, one of the benchmarking schemes that will be sort of well known within the industry is BREAM. And be interested to sort of hear your thoughts on the different routes to getting to a Briam excellent score, particularly, I suppose, in light of you know particulars of an asset, so the type of the asset or, or its location. Can you
1: talk yeah. a bit about that, Georgia? So um, Briam is is now, I think, relatively straightforward for most design teams. You know, they get it. It's a it's a very um, well trodden path. To, to get a BRIAM certification. Really, we need on all developments in the UK to be aiming for excellent and outstanding. You know, that is the new um, level of aspiration, really. You know, very good doesn't really cut it anymore as a, a minimum standard. And I think everybody needs to understand as well that BRIAM is simply one certification, and you can actually play the numbers on BRIAM. You know, there's a there are different ways of going about getting these certifications. The traditional way is to go through all of the credits, pick all the low hanging fruit. So all the easy stuff that you were basically you were going to do anyway, pick up those points and then take a strategic look at, you know, which is the least expensive route to get to the certification level that you're targeting. We go about it in a different way. So when we are looking at our clients, strategic goals across their whole business, which might be around aiming to achieve um, better finance, you know, from more aspirational funds, for example, they are going to need to demonstrate a certain level of performance across their portfolio. And so the way that we would use a BRIAM certification is not, like I said before, on that building by building basis where you just cherry pick all the easy stuff and then take the least worst options on all the rest of the credits to to get your level what we would do is say right strategically across our portfolio we are trying to demonstrate excellent social value and community engagement because that's a strategic priority for our business therefore we're going to max out all of the opportunities on this scheme to achieve points in bream for community social value and so on or it could be to do with water efficiency you know we've identified Identified across our business, that this is a real problem. So, we're going to max out the points for that particular part of Briam, and then we're going to work out strategically what the other bits are that we can get around that. So Again, it shows you how you can use these certifications in a different way when you look at it strategically across your portfolio, because in that way, you're investing in learning, you're getting practice to the techniques that you need to use across your portfolio to reduce or improve certain issues. Um, And then that can just become standard practice, you know, and, and you can start improving from there.
0: And so I suppose as a follow on from that, you shouldn't assume that a BRIAM excellent rating necessarily means that you're going to get a decent EPC rating when you're building.
1: Absolutely not. So again, you know, there are problems with all certifications. And one of the problems with BRIAM is that you don't have to get a particular score um, on energy. You know, this is, you can be as aspirational as you want to be in any of the different sections now clearly as you move through good very good excellent outstanding you have to start getting more and more points so you do need to decide where you're going to select those points but but obviously the, the higher the score the more likely it is you're doing well on energy nonetheless the points for energy in BRIAM are just about incrementally improving on compliance so you can achieve a BRIAM score just by achieving building regs, energy performance compliance. You don't have to go beyond that, there's no requirement to. And so if we are looking again with a client who has got a strategic priority to achieve deep decarbonization, then we're gonna start that project on the basis of this has to be a super energy efficient, low carbon property, max out those BRIAM credits and use sort of sister schemes like Neighbours to drive genuine low energy design and good energy performance in operation. EPCs, although EPCs, you know, they're mandated um, and there's a ratchet mechanism now with through the MEES scheme, the minimum, excuse me, bit of a mouthful, minimum energy efficiency standards it's ratcheting up so that the EPC certificate has to um, improve over time, it is still not an adequate mechanism for measuring energy efficiency. And a BRIAM rating certainly does not reassure that you have a good EPC.
0: You touched on the Neighbours scheme, and that has a sort of more detailed modelling approach than the EPC approach can you just give us a little bit more sort of detail around how that can allow you to forward plan your pathway
1: yeah so Neighbours is the National Australian Building Energy Rating Scheme. There we go. We've got it out eventually. so <laughs> many acronyms to remember. I know. Lot. Honestly, my world is full of them. It's ridiculous how many <laughs> you have to remember. It's a whole new glossary when you start looking into sustainability and in ESG. So, yeah, Neighbours uh, has been a really successful standard that's been used in Australia for, for many years, and it came over to the UK uh, a couple of years ago. It was... Um, released as a formal standard in 2021. What that seeks to do is close the gap between the EPC, which is just a theoretical compliance type of document. um, It's not accurate when it comes to the actual energy performance of a building. And what we see when we look at the data of actual energy performance in different EPC bands is that you can have an EPC of D, on one building and an EPC of A on another, and their energy performance in use is identical. So there are fundamental problems with the way in which an EPC is calculated. One really good example that we come up against with our clients is the fact that at the moment, EPCs um, would be negatively affected by having air source heat pumps, for example, um, electric heating sources. Uh, whereas a new gas boiler would be looked at favorably by an EPC. Now, clearly that's complete nonsense, but it just shows some of the fundamental flaws in the calculations. Neighbours is a two-phase certification. So the first phase is that At design stage, your um, designers must use a more dynamic energy modeling package. So they take into account many more factors of the building. So there are fewer assumptions about how the building will be used and there's much more accurate data is put in. So you will put in actual data about the hours of operation. You'll put in data about uh, the type of plant that you're using, things like small power or data servers will be included where they're not included in the calculations for an EPC. So you can see that 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 neighbor's model is much more accurate. That at that stage, at design stage, you set your intention for energy efficiency, you do your accurate energy modeling and you design a building that's intended to perform in a certain way. That's called design for performance stage. Then, building um, is commissioned it goes into operation for 12 months you then have to monitor the energy performance of the building and you fine tune it and you look and see whether or not it's meeting the design intent after 12 months if it is meeting design intent you can then get your full certification to neighbours which demonstrates that in practice the building is operating in the way in which it was designed so it's really fundamentally different from an EPC much more reliable much better design process and more accountable as well so you know future tenants will be able to see that they are being um, sold a building that genuinely performs in the way that it's intended to
2: do you think the end of the EPC will see that yes soon
1: yeah I'm (laughs) absolutely sure that EPCs are on the way out Many years ago it was like 1990, I think Econ19 came out, and that's how long we've known that EPCS are just nonsense, they're fairy tales, you know, and and there've been measures since then to try and improve the scheme, but they just it, it's a fundamentally broken. so I was going to
2: say that does the this infrastructure of it doesn't <laughs> quite work, does it?
1: Yeah, so I think it's it's one of those things that. The Neighbours scheme has been brought out as a voluntary certification, but what we can see is that Bays, the um, department, government department Bays, is paying very close attention to this scheme. And it is very much aligned with the direction that government is taking in terms of achieving um, decarbonisation of buildings, very hard to decarbonize sector. Um, and I think in time that the neighbours scheme will become mandatory uh, and actually will will replace EPCs. But you know, we just need to see how in practice it, it takes Absolutely. off.
2: Absolutely. I think that's quite exciting though, isn't it really? You're more at the cold face of it, but when you research into how well it's worked in Australia, it's there's some fantastic examples in terms of the buildings it's applied to and, and the quality. And as you say, the longevity of that quality and its mood, it's always changing, isn't it, with modern practices. Uh, And that's what makes it, I think, a really exciting prospect over here.
1: It's great. It's worked brilliantly well in Australia. Mm. You know, it has massively reduced the energy consumption of their buildings Um, and it also you know it helps upskill our design teams to understand more about the way in which our buildings work and where the sources of of energy um wastage are coming from exactly
0: so we've touched briefly earlier on um around whole life carbon assessments um which are coming in as part of the london plan Mm -hmm. do and you've sort of mentioned that you think sort of savvy um developers are starting to take that idea on board as well do you see that starting to spread across the country into other local authorities as well or has it indeed started to 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 spread already
1: yeah we've seen um planning applications that we're supporting at the moment that are looking for whole life carbon assessments and and it's a really great way actually and a relatively straightforward way for developers and applicants to demonstrate um you know positive intent and, and positive contribution to the council's Ambitions. I mean, most councils in the UK now have a climate emergency declaration Um, and even if their current planning um, rules don't require whole life carbon assessment, it's a great way of communicating with the local authority that this is a responsible development. So we're working on a couple of schemes at the moment where we're delivering whole life carbon assessments at planning stage um, and circular economy statements as well, which um, is part of the London plan, but it's actually being required by local authorities.
0: Now, there are other sort of roles that you think the local authorities can play in decarbonising the, the real estate sector and realising this path towards net zero.
1: Yeah, well, I, I do think that some of these new tools like design for performance and dynamic energy modelling, TM54, TM59, these are SIBSI guidelines um, for This uh, more effective energy modelling of buildings to to demonstrate that you're actually uh, designing for performance, not just for compliance. They're really great ways of uh, local authorities being able to change the process of design of the buildings um, to ensure better eventual performance and also greater transparency. Uh, Of buildings. I think as well, you know, local authorities have shied away from renewables um, requirements as well. And it has been a shame. It's been a real failing of central government, I think, personally, um, that they did away with things like the feed-in tariff, which almost overnight, you know, about 10 years ago, meant that in my local area you know loads of people took their money out of savings accounts and stuck it onto uh solar panels on their roofs you know because they were going to get a great free energy after a few years unfortunately that was withdrawn and an overnight again saw drying up of the renewable sector in the UK I think there are really great ways that local authorities could um, be effective in that requiring more renewables on their developments yeah
0: Thank you. And so I suppose just to sort of wrap things up, how do you want to sort of conclude? Would you say, you know, super important to to set your strategy out and make sure that you're engaging with the right people as early on as possible?
1: Well, I would say that because I'm a sustainability (laughs) consultant, (laughs) of course. No, but what we tend to find, the later that you bring in a sustainability expert, essentially the more money you're going to waste because as long as we're trying to bolt things on um, after the design has been established fundamentally the less impact you're going to have and the more expensive all of your initiatives are going to be if you start even before you have a building to build if you start at a strategic level around right what are our fundamental priorities for these buildings what are we going to do and why and how are we going to achieve the best out of the, the budget that we have for each building, then you can start using that capital expenditure in a really effective way. So prioritizing certain yeah. um, performance standards. You know, I, I when I talk to a lot of clients, they initially come to us because they want certain certifications. Quite often we counsel them out of chasing certifications because you just end up collecting badges and spending a huge amount of money on a whole load of certificates that don't really mean a great deal and they don't necessarily indicate that you are a more sustainable developer you would be much better off spending some money up front just working out your strategy and then streamlining your performance and your expenses on individual projects to the stuff that really matters and the stuff that's going to really make a difference for you you know whether it's on that particular building or across your whole portfolio
2: I think that's really key, isn't it, Georgia? Because it's not one size fits all, and it's different properties, sectors, aims, uh, and even sort of going some way to see that is that's the aim, isn't it? Just bringing everyone along the little way of the journey and then it can continue that looking forward. So
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, a big thing that we do on our projects, we encourage all of our clients and help them to get involved in um, pilot projects, data collection schemes, you know, input their data into different databases about you know how how much money they spent on certain things or how their energy performance was affected by different design features and share as much information as possible because Absolutely. really the goal here is not just to make one building green but mm. to improve the performance of the entire building industry so that we can achieve sustainable development together much more quickly and the only way we can do that is by not just constantly reinventing the wheel within our own demise. We need to to share that so other people can build on our experiences and get to the sustainable development goals much more quickly.
2: And hold everyone accountable, each other accountable as well. I
1: think. Yeah. And be honest, my um, approach with all clients now is I think the old world of sustainability is just creating a lovely shiny brochure and telling everyone that you're perfect and yeah. kind of ignoring all the, the difficult stuff that we don't like talking about. The new way is to accept that our economy is not sustainable. You know, doing the right thing is often expensive and hard. And so. We need to be honest about the journey, honest about the things that we can influence today, the stuff that we aspire to change going forwards and how we're going about doing that. We can't get there if we keep telling the world that we're perfect. We have to be comfortable with the vulnerability of saying we're not perfect we did great in this which is brilliant but we're not going to rest on our laurels because this this and this were less than ideal and we think there are some fundamental things we can do about that but we need to do xyz to get there and that might involve lobbying for change in regulations it might mean know some really fundamental changes to the supply chain or contracts or the way in which projects are developed at concept stage you know but we can't just keep throwing up our hands and saying it's outside of our control you know as an industry we are powerful we're we're powerful lobbyists and we're powerful change makers and we can own that and drive the positive change that we need to see to get us to sustainable development
0: thank you both so much for joining me today so if listeners would like to access any of our other podcasts you can do so via your usual podcast provider apple soundcloud and other providers are available Um, you can also head over to our sustainability hub on the forsters website forsters.co.uk and you can find other information around sustainability on our social media feeds you can check us out on linkedin twitter instagram and facebook and until next Fine. Goodbye. The Forsters Modern Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forsters LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on, or reference to this podcast. Forsters LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The Than or podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted whether in whole or part without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.